Hello, my friends. Today's episode is a collaboration between Modern CTO and the Code Newbie podcast. Tune in to hear Joel's journey from developer to CTO to podcast host. Right here, right now, on the Modern CTO podcast. Welcome to the Code Newbie podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about how to think like a CTO with Joel Beasley, author of Modern CTO and host of the Modern CTO podcast. The software feature I'm building, how does that actually connect to revenue for the company? You start asking questions like that and you'll learn a lot really fast. Joel talks about getting hit by a car when he was younger and using that rehabilitation period to learn how to code selling his first technology at the age of 18 for $1 million, and what he's learned from interviewing so many CTOs after this. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. So, Joel, you are a very accomplished individual, fellow podcaster, also accomplished business person. You started writing code at the age of 13 and sold your first technology just five years later at 18 for $1 million. So you became a millionaire before the rest of us, you know, graduated college, which is very impressive. Take us all the way back. Take us back to 13 years old. What got you into coding in the first place? My dad is an engineer in the Air Force. They put the GPS system into the B-32 stealth bombers. Wow. And so that's where he learned hardware and software Mm -hmm. uh, development. And then when he came out of the Air Force, he would do a lot of freelancing, nights and weekends type stuff. People were getting their first computer systems installed in their businesses. So he would take me with him after work because I had some siblings and my mom was like, hey, just take one of the kids with you. (laughs) So that ended up being me a lot. So I got to experience many different office environments, Mm. many different types of technologies, computer systems. So I got into it like as a hobby or an interest, like around age eight. And then it wasn't until I got hit by a car around age 13 and I came out of school for two years and was in a wheelchair and had to go through the process of learning how to walk again. Wow that I took that free time that I had Mm. outside of school and I found out you could make money on like Scriptlance and some different websites and they didn't care that I was, you know, 12, 13, sitting at home. Do they even know? Yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So figured out how to make money and then my mom and my stepdad were both real estate agents. So Mm. later in high school, I would hang out at their real estate office after school and I would hear different agents complaining or having issues or desires and I would just build little softwares those eventually turned into a larger application which I then partnered and then grew it and sold it. That is so interesting. What helped you go from, you know, I'm hanging out with my dad and I'm hanging out at, you know, home, having fun, coding, learning these skills to I'm going to make a million dollars. That feels like a big leap <laughs> for that age, right? Like, I think that most of us don't consider, you know, business as a, a real opportunity or, you know, making products that become startups and businesses until, you know, much later. How did you kind of make that connection so young? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I liked money when I was young. Cool. And yeah. one of the first projects that I tried to do because I was sitting at home all the time, I was only able to really order pizza mm-hmm. when I was laid up with my broken leg. Mm. And so I got sick of it and I wanted to order from like Outback Steakhouse or Chili's or something. Right. And there was no food service type 
companies then. So I mm. had the phone company install phone jack in my room so I could take calls. And my first call was to the newspaper to place an ad for a delivery driver because I figured I'd make a little business out of it. Okay. And they laughed at me trying to make the ad because they could tell, you know, now being 34, you can tell when it's a 12 year old yeah. boy. <laughs> I got a high <laughs> little voice, hasn't quite yeah. matured yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they laughed at me and then in that whole process, I was going to build a little web app to mm. help me with the orders and everything. And that's when I just found out this is way easier. I can just make some money. And mm. I ended up just making money writing code for people. And then it was really about solving the problem. It wasn't setting out to make a million dollars. And trust me, like I tried to do it multiple times after and failed. Mm. So mm. it's not easy to do that. But I thought it was because my first experience was pretty easy. But mm -hmm. then I pretty much blew that whole amount of money. I mean, what do you think would happen if you give that much money to an 18-year-old? That's um, a good point. <laughs> Wait, what did you yeah. spend it on at 18? Like, where, where did you, like, buy a nice car? Huh. Like, how, how did that happen? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so at that point, why did it feel so easy? You know, you said that the million dollars just kind of happened and you realize when you try to do it later over the years, it was a lot harder. Why do you think it was so easy at that point? Yeah. So the first time I was doing something really successful that I didn't realize was what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I was spending a lot of time with the customers because mm -hmm, I was in that real mm -hmm. estate office and I was yeah. hearing them and I'd build something and I could, you know, see them use it because we were all in the same room. And that created like a really great product. And then... Mm. Later, the next product I tried to do was like in isolation. That didn't work out super well. And then, you know, I started reading and educating myself better on product development and figuring out that that's actually a really key part. So then I connected those dots on, mm. you know, making better products, being really close to the end user. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I totally mm -hmm. get that. Tell me a little bit more about what that real estate software looked like. What did it do? What problem was it solving? Tell me about that. So it did too many things. It did a mm -hmm. lot of things. And I ended up building like a total of, I think, four different real estate softwares over the course of about five years. I mean, honestly, it's a cool one to talk about because it was like, the, you know, the first big one. But as far as like technologically cool, it was not. Mm. It was like super basic marketing listings. And the one after that that I did, which was financial software, and portfolio allocation and predictive analysis and all of those types of cool things. Mm -hmm. That was way more fun from like a nerd standpoint, projecting someone's portfolio over the course of their lifetime, given different tax brackets and all that stuff. And then I went into a fitness project, built some fitness software, and then did a second financial software. And then after that, my mom got sick and she passed away within like two weeks. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so it was like that. a big surprise to all of us. Mm. She randomly found out she had leukemia and they're like, oh, she's got a year or two. And then like a few weeks later, she passed away. And so wow. that was like a big moment for me. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I'm going to try like harder because until then I hadn't really tried super hard. And uh, that's when I started to like write the book and the book turned into the podcast mm -hmm. and then the podcast got popular. And so it's been probably about three years since I've been writing code. The first two years of the podcast, because it's five years old, the first two years mm -hmm. I was still writing code. We were building a leadership development platform. So I haven't been writing code full-time for like the past three years, just mm -hmm. been doing the podcast. When you were 
building these apps and learning how to code, what did the learn to code environment look like at that point? Because these days it feels like there's so many resources, free resources, paid, you know, cheap, freemium. There's so many different ways to learn. But back then, what did it look like? The kids these days are spoiled, right? (laughs) (laughs) The way it looked like is you went to Barnes and Noble and bought a book. Yep. I didn't figure out I could even do that Mm. until much later. Basically, the first couple things I wanted to do, I just looked the documentation of the language I had been programming in and just tried to figure it out and trial and error and like a lot of trial and error. And then at some point, I went on a trip and I was at a bookstore and I saw that they had books on like programming, like very specific things like principles mm-hmm. and testing. And I was like, what is all this stuff? What is mm-hmm. testing? What what are these like design patterns and, you know, dry principles and all of this stuff? And I mm-hmm. learned a whole lot. So I just started buying a lot of books. And so that was probably several years into programming that I figured out you could buy these books and learn and you could go a lot faster. But the first several years were just digging through documentation and trial and error. If you were learning to code today, right, you discovered code for the first time today, knowing what you know now, having a a lot of experience or a decade of experience, how would you approach it? How would you approach your learning journey given the resources that are available today? Well, see, now there's so many different niches too. So I'd figure out wherever I wanted to be. Like if I wanted to be in data science, I'd probably go to like data camp. Or if I didn't know what I was wanting to do and I wanted to play a bunch of stuff, I'd probably go to like Pluralsight or something. Mm -hmm. I guess that's probably what I'd do is I'd go there and then I'd find a friend or somebody to talk about it with in person or audibly, even if you're remote. Because Mm -hmm. for several years I was programming and I didn't talk about it to anybody. I mean, I typed it out to people I was working with and whatnot, Mm. but actually verbally speaking about code and objects and memory and saying those words aloud actually was kind of hard for me. If if I would have started it from the beginning, it would have been a lot easier for me to pick up conversational so I could talk to other programmers in person. Mm. So I would do that sooner by connecting with somebody and talking more about what I was doing and why I was doing it, sort of like pair programming kind of. Why is talking important? Like when you grow your team, you have to be able to talk with the people Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. You have to Mm -hmm. be able to interview. And if you're an individual contributor and you're working on a project by yourself, it's not really that important. Mm -hmm. But the moment you start working with people and now today, that's the other thing, like more and more and more, you're just having to work with more people because there's more specialties. Mm -hmm. You could, there there was a lot of know-it-alls, you know, in the Mm eighties and the nineties, those people have kind of died off because you can't know it all. There's way too many areas to be an expert in. You just can't mm-hmm. possibly do it. I think that's one of the things that makes, you know, coding so much more intimidating these days is, you know, it's grown so much. The industry has become very specialized and there's so many more things you can do than ever before. And I know that a lot of people who are starting their coding journey just get really overwhelmed. You know, they get that paralysis of, oh my goodness, like, where do I start? Where do I go? How do I know what to pick? And and, and all that. Do you have any advice for people like that who are trying to, you know, start on, on step one and are seeing just so many options, so many different certificates and languages and frameworks and fields mm-hmm. and specialties they can go in? So I get people that reach out a lot from the podcast mm-hmm. and ask me questions like that. And one gentleman specifically was asking me, you know, I want to learn machine learning and like, 
came up with a couple different projects and they sounded kind of boring to me. And I was like, those sound kind of boring. Like, is that really what you're interested in? They're like, no, but I think that that's going to be the best for me professionally. Mm. And I said, well, like, what do you care about? And he's like, mm. oh, I'm really into music. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, what type of music? And I think it was like metal or something. And I was like, okay, so you're really into metal music. And I was like, why don't you find a data source that has like all the music and maybe process their lyrics and find some patterns there or mm. process their chord progressions to see similarities. Find something to do with the data that's in an area that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. You'll be far more excited about that than loving metal music and you know, being 17 and trying to process accounting data, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'd also get a code mentor. It's like, mm -hmm. there's all types of people. There's actually a site called Code Mentor, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. there's all types of people on it. I did it for fun for about two years or so, just mentoring people that were coming out of code camps all over the world. Mm -hmm. My goal was to help them cut down their curve from where they are coming out bright-eyed and bushy-tailed from a code camp to figuring out like all those fake projects they essentially booted up and cloned like what are you supposed to be doing with them and mm -hmm. you know how do you get from where you're at today to actually passing a job interview and joining a team. Mm -hmm. So back to my advice to my past self, I'd say that I would find a mentor and it doesn't have to be a code mentor. Like mm -hmm. you, you definitely want a peer that you can talk to about and then you want a mentor that can help guide you in the right direction. And then as quickly as possible, I would say you should get someone under you to teach you. So like the moment you've got mm. hello world and you're like kind of past that, start volunteering and helping people that don't even know how to install the language mm. onto their computer. Because then mm -hmm. you start developing that teaching skill and that tends to be important if you want to go into either management or if you want to be like the best in your field, mm. right? I haven't found anybody in all the conferences and all the people I know, I haven't found anyone that's like the best in their field that don't have like the ability to teach. That's a really good point because I hear all the time this advice of if you really want to make sure you know something, teach it, right? Teaching yeah. is the, the way to kind of double down and, and really make sure that you know what you're talking about. But I don't know if I've heard someone say, but also that's a skill of a manager. That's a skill of an expert, you know? Well, um, a it's good usually one. a good one. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> fair. And so if your goal is to, you know, become a manager, move up, you know, in your organization, in your career, that's probably a, a good skill to start working on, start practicing. Yeah, I saw a lot of people like when the whole thing came popular of, oh, there's a management track and there's an engineering right. track. Right. You know, I saw a, a good amount of people sort of use that as an excuse to not connect with other people and try to, you know, grow themselves farther. Mm. And I want to tell them, like, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, like the people who will go farthest on the expert track, you, like you still have to have mm -hmm. these skills to go to the end. It's like a, mm -hmm. you know, interstate highway. You can just keep going <laughs> or some people just get off at exit three and, and they don't go to exit 100. So let's dig into just this idea of a CTO. How would you describe what a CTO does? So it's going to be different based off of the company. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people ask me, oh, what's the roles and responsibilities? 
Now, this guy, Eric Weiss, put together this something I'm, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm including it in my next book. I asked him if I could because I saw him give a talk on it, and it's called the CTO Maturity Model. Oh. And it shows at what stages of growth and personnel, like from revenue and personnel and product, these different maturity levels and what the CTO's focus is at each specific level. And it changes as the company grows. In general, the CTO is the person at the company who is responsible for the technology, typically outward facing. You'll find CIOs will typically do the inward facing technology, mm-hmm. internal networks, internal allocation of equipment, all those mm-hmm. types of things. And then you'll find CTOs generally deal with outside stuff, the products that are being developed, things like that. I think that at least when I think about a CTO, you know, the CTO is usually the highest person in the organization on the tech side of things, right? They're the chief technology officer. And so I guess I've just kind of always made this assumption. And I, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, and I'm curious to hear your take on it, that the CTO you know, by virtue of, of being the, the highest person, you know, in the org chart is also the most expert and the most knowledgeable. How true is that? How much does the CTO actually know compared to, you know, the senior engineers or other people on the tech team? Well, from the aspect of the role of CTO, they probably know it the best because they have the most experience of like the responsibilities of the CTO. Mm. As far as like the technology goes, you definitely don't want to be the smartest person. Mm. You want to hire people that are far smarter than you. Tell me more about that. What is the relationship, I guess, between the CTO and the engineering team if the engineering team is kind of, you know, the, the technical experts? What does that relationship look like? It's different at different companies and different sizes. I'm not trying to not give you a straight answer, but typically what the CTO is going to be doing. And all this is like prefaced with like a good CTO, right? Right. I'm sure there's at least one person listening that has a bad one. (laughs) They're like, that's not true. That's not my CTO. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The first thing you'll have to do as a CTO with your team is you have to find out what drives the individual and then what you need for that position, for that role. So like I need Mm. these attributes Mm -hmm. from that role. And then this is where that person is driving towards. Mm -hmm. And then if they're aligned, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're not aligned and then it's not fair to you or to them. So understanding how what your team member wants versus what you need out of them, Mm. how that meshes together, whether it does or it doesn't, that's a skill that good CTOs will have. And so they'll have all the people rowing in the same direction and on a common mission. Mm -hmm. And that's super important because that's how you're going to get the best work environment. You're going to get the best product. You're going to get the best of everything. If you have really talented people who are all pushing in the same direction. Would you say there is a particular personality type or disposition that good CTOs have, or do they come in different, you know, personalities and temperaments? (laughs) Well, they absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So you can be quiet and be a good leader. You can be loud Mm -hmm. and be a good leader. You can Mm -hmm. be quiet and be a bad one. You can be loud and be a bad one. Mm -hmm. I found all different shapes, sizes, colors, attributes, everything. It's really what they focus on because you can be quiet and you can focus on what's best for your team and you can be loud and focus what's best Mm -hmm. for your team, right? So it's, it's really about what actions are they taking? Where are they spending their time? How aware of the culture they are and if they're happy with what their culture is. Mm -hmm. What are some patterns that you've 
noticed amongst the good ones, the, the good CTOs, the ones that are you know, effective and impactful at their job? What, you know, what do they have in common? The first one that comes to mind is Cody. He is the CIO of T-Mobile for like 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. And he was one of my earlier interviews that sort of made the podcast popular. So I'm very grateful to him for that. But he had said something along the lines of it's all about the people. And at the time, like I knew that was kind of important, but I thought that was like 20% of it. Mm. And I've come to realize that's like 80 plus percent of it. Mm, wow. Okay. That was, a, that was a real big one. Another one, Mary Beth Westmoreland. She's one of my favorite CTOs. I think she left Blackbaud and I think she's over at Amazon now, but she's fantastic. And she had said something that stuck with me. Don't shop hungry. Huh. <laughs> and it was in reference to hiring. She goes, so if you go to the grocery store and you're really hungry, you're going to grab whatever you can grab. You're going to walk out of the grocery <laughs> store, look at that cart, and it's going to be full of junk food. Yeah. And I'm like, yep. And she goes, if you're hiring and you have some sort of hiring quota, you have to bring these amount of people in and you're hungry and you're desperate, you're going to end up bringing in a lot of junk and that's going to mm. slow you down. So she said, you know, mm. don't shop hungry. Take your time with finding the right people and wait mm. for them. Yeah, I've I've always heard the advice be slow to hire and quick to fire. Yeah. Which mm -hmm. as as someone who's hired people, I find very difficult to follow because <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. when you want to hire people, like you want them now. You know, you want you want to get to work and start doing it. And then when you have to let people go, you're like, Oh, but you know, maybe we can work it out. So I I've, I find that advice very difficult, but I, I do agree that it's really powerful and, and really true. So I'm slow to confidence. It takes me a mm. long time. I start out my base level is like highly shy. Mm. So when I meet new people, I'm typically the quiet one until I figure out like what's going on. Mm. So because I'm shy, it was really hard for me the first time having to fire people. Mm. And it was even harder like when they were older than me, you know? Oh yeah, that's awkward. <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> My business partner had taken me into the room and he's like, I thought he was going to let him go. And he's like, do it. And I was just like, oh Oof. no. Oh, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. Yeah. Yeah. It was painful. And then it didn't get easier like mm. the second one or the third one. Mm -hmm. After like 20 people, it got easier. So I kind of want to share something that I learned. The first thing is that your natural instinct is to not want to fire people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you're empathetic and we're humans and we don't want to do that to somebody. You need some perspective. So, for example, let's say, you perceive them to know more about what they needed to know about when you hired them, mm -hmm. right? And then yes. they get into the role and they're like way underskilled for what you need. Well, you would find the perspective of why this needs to happen or why it's a good thing or how it will like benefit them. So for example, I could tell that person, hey, it's my mistake. We didn't vet this position closer. Like we needed somebody that has like several years more experience than you currently have in this. And let's say for argument's sake, we don't have any other position to move you to that's less skilled. Right. Like, so we can't have you on the team or we have to let you go. And I would focus on sharing some insight with them later at a later point where they would be better off like at a company that's like willing to teach, like look for that or help them based off of wherever their skill level is currently. Mm -hmm. But what I want the takeaway to be from this is you have to find out how it's beneficial for them for you to let them go and then own any part of it that was your fault mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and make your processes better so it doesn't happen again. Yep. Yeah. But I would also say another thing I learned that's really, really important is there's a time for storytelling. When you want to sell ideas, storytelling mm -hmm. is great. I'm going to bring mm -hmm. you on this journey, how I came to this decision. I love telling stories, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Big fan of it. 
blows up in your face if you try to tell a story when you're firing somebody. <laughs> so they think you're explaining to them something because mm. you often talk with them, right? Mm. And they're trying, they're like, wait, am I being fired? Mm. And it's like, after that happened a couple of times, I started talking to some other people and I realized that bring them in and simply say, we're letting you go. Today will be your last day. Mm. And then their whole world is going to implode. And so mm -hmm. they're usually either going to be quiet, say, okay, thanks. Like I knew this wasn't a good fit. Or they're usually going to like yell mm. and be upset, which is understandable human reaction. Mm -hmm. You just want to be really, really clear mm -hmm. and not tell a yeah. long story. They don't care really why they're being fired. They might ask and stuff. That's another thing too. Sometimes they'll ask or they'll want to be combative and say, oh, you know, what was it? You know, and they'll try to like, find a specific point and then like mm -hmm. maybe defend it or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Don't get into that dance at all. Mm -hmm. you know, this is going to be your last day. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here's how you do exit. But this is firsthand Joel experience. This is something <laughs> I learned from somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's way different when it's your money too. Oh, so yeah. like, you know, I was really shy until I was like going broke because I was hiring bad people. Mm. And then I was like, I'm sorry, I can't go broke. Like I have to get the right people in here and I have to do it fast. So you mentioned earlier that it is all about the people and that, you know, you thought maybe it's 20 percent, but really it's like 80 percent. What does it mean when someone says it's all about the people? What does that actually mean? What does that look like? I mean, people make the product and people buy the product. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have people buying the product, there wouldn't be money to make the product. Yep. So just by those two arguments alone, it's mostly about people. Mm. <laughs> the technology is a small piece in there. It's like a transitionary piece that you're leveraging. It's like a hammer. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's mm -hmm. the hammer. People don't want to buy like a piece of wood with nails in it. They want to buy a house. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that is such a great way to put that. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from now on. I'm going to use yeah, that Yeah, that to is not for me. That is a butchered version of some other smart person that came okay. on the show. <laughs> That's a good budget version. <laughs> I know, I like right? That. I was like, it came out okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. That is so interesting. It took me a while to kind of appreciate that reality, just you know, in terms of building a business and building a product, is that people don't actually care. I mean, maybe if maybe developers care, you know, like the you know your hardcore developers who want to know what tool you're using, what tech stack you're, maybe they care. But for the most part, customers don't really care. They care about you know if you solve a problem and if you are addressing their needs and if you're helping them do a particular job. The implementation details are are just details, and that's not really what you're there for. And it, it took me a while to to kind of appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, humans spend money to solve a problem. I can't find an example of somebody spending money that's not to solve a problem. Yeah. By luck. <laughs> you know? So I guess one of the things I would wish I would have done earlier as mm -hmm. an engineer was figure out the software feature I'm building, how does that actually connect to revenue for the company? You start asking questions like that and you'll learn a lot really fast. It's like, how does me doing this connect to revenue? And you know, how many hops away is the task that you're doing from actually generating revenue? Hmm. If you get too far out there, <laughs> it, well, this is this is more of a management thing too. Like when you're trying to do resource allocation, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you're going to cut off the projects that are super far from revenue, and you're going to focus more on the features and development pipelines or things that are closer and tighter to revenue. Going back to this idea of you know it, it being all about the people. When a CTO, you know, a good CTO implements that thinking, that perspective, that philosophy, 
What does it look like? How do you translate that concept into actions, into, you know, culture, into your work? What does it mean for a CTO to make decisions, you know, create an environment where it's all about the people? What's running through my mind right now, it's a little bit off from answering your question exactly. Okay. But I think it'll help. Okay. If I had to go into a time machine uh-huh. and go back to myself and I had 15 seconds, okay. right? And I had to give like the best stuff to my former self and I only had that amount of time. Uh-huh. The knowledge that would help me the most in all of the areas would be like become a better person. Hmm. Just always figure out how to become a better human being than you were the day before. Mm-hmm. Because look, really great people, magnetic leaders, I mean, you know, you meet these people all the time, right? Like these humans, they're really great humans. And when you got really great humans and somebody who's constantly trying to grow themselves and improve themselves, all the other stuff sort of like takes care of itself. You're going to be around good people because that's the environment you have to be in in order to grow yourself. You're going to have good relationships and things are going to be running smooth because those are prerequisites to having enough energy and time to grow yourself. You have to make sure your environment's, you know, stable and productive. And so like the root of things are, you know, just be a really, really great person and treat people with respect. It's all the cliches, really. Oh, Mm -hmm. that was another thing too. Like cliches are things that people don't like because they're true. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) when I found that out, I was like, oh my goodness. So if you just need wisdom, just go to the cliches. The cliches are like the best sources of wisdom and every generation simply repeats the same principles of the cliche with their own language. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So if I want the knowledge of an entire generation, all I have to do is look at the cliches of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And now that's just going to repeat, you know, forever, just with different Mm -hmm. words and different context. But yeah, Mm. you know, I heard this guy, Jim Rohn, when I was broke at the time. So I made a lot of money and then I was broke. And then I figured out how to make money and manage it and then grow a business. But I was really frustrated. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, why? (laughs) Like this sucks. Like the position I was in really was not good. Mm. My house was in foreclosure. The repo man was banging on the door. Mm. Like I had lit candles because my electricity was out. And I learned that you don't light scented candles for light because you wake up in the morning and soot is all over your face. (laughs) The next day I just somehow came across this YouTube video of this motivational speaker guy from the 80s and 90s named Jim Rohn. And he said this sentence that is burned into my mind And I never have to write it down because it just imprinted itself on my brain. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world is expecting above average results without being an above average person. And I just like, boom, like mic drop. I love that. Oh my God. That's why I was so upset. I was thinking (laughs) I should have highlight real celebrity level success, but I wasn't putting in the work to be an above average person. And so I was really conflicted internally and frustrated and that moment was like my first attempt to like, all right, I'm going to be an above average person. What does that look like in, in the context of being a CTO, being a developer, you know, being in tech in general, this idea of being an above average person? So people respect things that are difficult to do. I don't question it. I just observe it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, everyone's always like, oh, you wake up at 5 a.m. It's like, yeah, but I mean, it's all relative, right? 
because mm-hmm. if I were in a different time zone, <laughs> 1 p.m. could be 5 a.m., right? So that, that's why it doesn't make sense. It's not that you're getting up at a specific time. It's that you're doing something that other people are unwilling to do that's difficult. Mm. Doing those difficult things creates discipline, and mm. discipline bleeds across your entire life. So the discipline I get from waking up at a specific time or going to the gym is equal to the discipline that I'm going to write the code correctly the first time or I'm going to write test and you know do everything right and not cut corners. So discipline, you can't compartmentalize. I'm disciplined in these areas of my life and then I'm just completely off the rails mm. and all the others. You probably could improve some discipline, but you're raising that bar of discipline across all areas of your life when you mm-hmm. do it. So, you know, people will ask me for advice when I give talks and things like, oh, how do I become a better CTO? What books do I read? And I was like, do you go to the gym like four times a week? Hmm. No, do that. (laughs) That will make you a better person. Like we are human and our consciousness is stored inside this organic computer and it has properties and we need to maintain it. We need to take care of it, like maintenance our car. You know, we have to take care of it because it directly affects your ability to think and process and that's one thing that I learned that was Mm. really important I take it to the extreme now (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm. like I could tell you this morning I had 29 grams of oats for breakfast with three ounces of ham two blueberry waffles and four ounces of jam and 18 grapes like I think it sounds like a really good meal I'm not gonna lie Nice and balanced. You got some sweet, you got some salty. Like, I yeah. love it. It's a great, great combination. So, how do you know that you are ready for a CTO position? If the CTO person is not necessarily the most expertise or not necessarily the person who's been, you know, coding the longest or knows the most. How do you know that you're ready to, you know, apply for that type of job or, or seek that type of position? I think maybe if you know you're ready, mm. you've waited too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you have a desire to do it, go do it. People ask me, how do I become a CTO? I said, go pay $195 to your state, file an LLC, and give yourself mm-hmm. the title of CTO. You can do it this afternoon. Amen. So I'd say, like, why should you go for CTO? Mm. You should go for CTO if you like big picture things and you like people mm-hmm. or you want to be a CTO so bad you're willing to learn skills you don't have to become it because you're really that excited about it. Mm. You can use just raw interest in having the title, but you have to learn a lot of skills to be like I went from quiet, shy, introverted engineer to this and it it was a very painful path. Mm. It would have been a lot less painful if I just stayed in my technology space and like mastered a specific style of technology and never given any talks and always have, you know, been a team member or something. But it's a lot more painful, but it's also a lot more rewarding to do. Coming up next, Joel talks about what he looks for in a good CTO and how people can attain those skills to become one. After this. So if you were to start a new company or maybe, you know, hire a CTO right now for an organization, what would you look for? What what kinds of things catch your eye, get you excited about a particular candidate when you're hiring for that role? I really like when they understand the market. Mm. So 
when they understand the market and they understand how this product fits into the market, that's really useful. Aside from all the, you know, the great leadership things, you communicate well, admit what they don't know, like be a great person, try to be growing, those types of things, really care about your people. I don't know how to give a test for people who have the right energy for the team, but you know, a lot of people say, oh, do you want really high energy, positive people? Or do you want, like, what type of person do you want? And I say, well, the team in the company and the culture dictates that, right? So it's not like one's better than the other. I would say mm -hmm. one's better than the other in context. Like if you have a team of very mild engineers and you put a loud, great engineer on there, that might create some conflict. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it. I would try to keep the team similarly balanced, of course, with diversity of thought. So how might someone attain these skills? Because one thing that, you know, I'm kind of appreciating in our conversation today about, you know, what a CTO does and what role they play, what makes a good CTO, is it, I don't know if it requires a team, but, you know, if we're talking about leadership skills and management skills being so integral, you got to have people to lead, right? Like you yes. got to you got to people around you to, to to lead, help make decisions, support that kind of thing. So if you are, you know, hoping to get that CTO title, you know, one day at an organization maybe that you really respect or you want to be a part of, what are some ways that you can kind of work on those skills? What are some ways you can attain those skills before you you feel like you're ready to apply? So it's super easy and everyone can do it today. All you have to do is you are the first person to lead yourself. Hmm. You look at yourself like a project and lead yourself, shape yourself, give yourself feedback, grow yourself, watch yourself grow, learn what doesn't work to motivate you, learn mm. what does work to motivate you, learn how you feel about the feedback you give yourself. Use yourself first because mm. you cannot lead other people until you can lead yourself. Mm -hmm. You can get promoted to a position where you're leading other people, right. but you can't effectively lead people at a world-class level without leading yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. I'd say start with yourself. Mm -hmm. And then let's say you've got that going, right? Let's say you're an engineer, you're a healthy person, you're active, you've got a good emotional structure in your life, right? You have relationships and people you care about and you're part of community. Let's say you've got all those bases covered, right? And you're an engineer. So you're leading yourself well, right? And now you want to show people maybe that, hey, I can lead myself, but I can also lead other people. You don't need the title like leadership is influence, right? Mm. So that's like the basis of it. Like you can go develop influence with people. It's so like, how do you develop influence with people? Provide them something of value. You're useful to them in some sort of way. You have their respect in some sort of way. So you can go around and start developing influence with other people within your team and within your organization. Do the things that you want to do for the position you want to be in. It's like, you know, what the, what the cliche, dress for the job you want, mm -hmm. not for the one you have. Well, mm -hmm. you know. Do the job you want. <laughs> with the, with the one have. asterisk that I have had people that do this, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. come back to me and they're like, this didn't work. And <laughs> so I like to pass this along. Yeah, don't actually take someone else's responsibilities right. away from them. Right. And you can't like actually let people go if you can't actually let people go. Um, so it definitely takes so some awkward. like base level intelligence to implement this advice. Yes. But, you know, if you're one of those people that are listening and you can read the room, you know what that means? And like you've got a high emotional intelligence, mm. you can simply go as far as you want. Because that is one of the things that's the hardest in, in the world to teach. Mm. And it's one of the things that holds people back that even want to do it the most. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. Joel, are you ready to fill in the blanks? Let's do it. 
Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? Advice that lacks context. So it's like the worst style of advice. You'll hear advice and you'll hear some speaker give it and it'll be like a one-liner. But if you don't have the context in which they were giving that advice, like Mm -hmm. maybe the story and how they came to learn that, you're in for some hurt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you have to understand if you're taking advice from people or take advice only from people that have done what you're specifically trying to do. Mm -hmm. Ignore Mm -hmm. everything else. Mm -hmm. So if I want to learn how to do something, I typically go on Google and find who the smartest person in the world is that's alive in that area. Mm -hmm. And I send them an email Mm -hmm. and people are like, well, you could do that. Now you have the podcast. I I did that before I had the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And it works. Cold emailed at 22. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, when we got the CTO of Verizon on, you know how we did this? So I literally sent an email to the CTO of Verizon Uh and within five minutes calls me back. His name's Hans. He goes, hey, got your email. I definitely would love to come on your show, but it's not public knowledge yet, but in like a couple weeks, I'm going to become the CEO. So I I don't think I should be booked on your show, but this guy, Kyle, he's going to take my position as CTO and I Mm. think you should have him on. And I was like, cool. T-Mobile and Verizon are like two of our first big guests. Wow. I was really surprised at like how quickly he called back. Number two, best advice I've ever received is? That would be Kyle's advice. I do that. I actually implemented it. I have a recurring event in my calendar every quarter and I do that. Nice. Inevitably, the moment I get the little do-do-do-do, I have (laughs) forgotten the advice and I remember the advice by seeing that notification. Mm. And then I sit down, I spend five minutes doing it, Uh and I almost always hire somebody or change someone's role. I always make changes. Like I've never gotten to the point where I'm like, Actually, one time I got to the point where I was like cool with it, like one of the times. And I said, this is a problem because I'm not growing for my specific scenario. I hadn't been growing. I was like taking it kind of easy that quarter. Mm -hmm. I upped it to do something more difficult the next quarter. Basically, I did the how you want to spend your time. But then I added how I have to spend my time like to grow myself in there. And Mm. that's that's also how I want to spend my time. Like you don't want to be stagnant. That's how you go, you know, backwards, which sucks. Number three, my first coding project was about. All right. So as a kid, I thought my dad was like really teaching me how to code. Mm -hmm. As an adult, I realized he was giving me busy work to keep me (laughs) busy so he could get his work done. (laughs) I know. I know. He was having me like run through all these like DOS commands, Uh like IP type stuff and like reporting back the information to him. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, basically just all like like diagnostic stuff. And I found out you could actually write script. So you press a button and it ran all the routines. And when he found out that I learned how to do that, so he's like, oh, you know, tonight, you know, for the next four hours, you're going to run these 20 commands. And it had happened to be the same ones that were from like the previous night. Yeah. And I wrote the script and I boop. And he's, how'd you get that done so fast? <laughs> he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You know, so that was the first technical oh, piece awesome. of code that I wrote. Yeah. Number four, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is. So people do this thing where they like will hop around like different languages. And mm-hmm. I think it's harder to do it that way. Yeah, I think is. if you dive a mile deep on one language to understand mm. it like completely and fully, you can mm. pick up other languages super fast because mm. you understand the core principles. So I'd say, you know, there's too many things. You definitely want to understand core principles of mm-hmm. programming that transcend languages. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you again so much for joining us, Joel. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. You can reach out to us on Twitter at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. For more info on the podcast, check out www.CodeNewbie.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.